Welcome to episode 12 of the Edinburgh Tradfest podcast. This is our last episode for the 2022 run. I'm Jane Ann Purdy and I'm joined by my constant companion and co-producer of Tradfest, Douglas Robertson. Before we get started, I'd like to draw your attention to our live music programme for this year's festival, which, if you're listening to this on the day of release, starts today. You can check out all the shows at edinburghtradfest.com. That's the first plug of the day over with, and now Douglas is going to let you know who's in this week's show. Cheers. We're going to be chatting to Ailey Shaw and James McIntosh from Sugar Nifty. We're looking forward to getting back on the road next month. They'll be playing for us on the 6th of May. We hear from Loreline Morgan Davis about inspiration behind one of our Boa Frost bands, Madaram. And Sabrina Ward tells us all about her musical journey from Jamaica to Scotland. But before all that, this. Una Monaghan is a harper, composer, sound engineer and academic based in Belfast. Her recent work combines traditional music with bronze sculpture, sound art and movement sensors. She gained a PhD from the Sonic Arts Research Centre at Queen's University in 2015 and combined her music with a research fellowship at the University of Cambridge from 2016 to 2019. Una will be giving a performance on the harp at this year's festival and also giving the 2022 Rebellious Truth Lecture based on her research into gender inequality in traditional music. As a preamble to that event, we are delighted to welcome her to the podcast. Hi, Una, how are you doing? I'm great. It's lovely to be here. Hi, hi for me too. We remember your last performance, which was actually here in this house. Um, To listeners, we um, do concerts in our house, um, have done for quite a few years. And Una appeared with Tim Matthew and Martin Green from Lau, which we think was in 2013. Can you remember? Amazing. <laughs> like it doesn't feel like that long ago. I know. Um, that was a that was a really lovely night. And it's it's one that I re- I still remember. You know, you don't remember all performances, but sure. that one was unique in so many ways, both in terms of the setting and the, the musical and artistic personnel involved, and just it, it was so enjoyable. Yeah, and you're a musician, a composer. And a sound engineer, apart from being an academic, obviously. Um, it's sort of uh, in equal measure. Um, I don't know if that's, is that a conscious choice to kind of um, have that kind of variety in your skills? Yeah, we, we always want to say it's a conscious choice, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, it is. And the older I get, the more I, I realise that it is a choice. Because I think when you're younger, you're sort of, you're trying to survive really in any arts career and you're doing what, you know, work comes and you're doing, you're trying to keep what you're interested in as well as with what you need to do. But as I've got older and I've realized that all the parts are still there, they must be still there for a reason. And I, I really do enjoy all of them. And I think, I like to think it's an equal parts, but I think you maybe, if you just take a snapshot of any particular year or any part of a year, you know, I do try to keep a bit of each of them going because I enjoy each of them kind of equally. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, a lot of the sound engineers we know have been musicians, but aren't really professional musicians anymore. Do, do you think this, this sound mixing kind of feeds into the, your work as a musician stroke composer? It definitely does. I mean, it always has done. I, I was a musician before I was an engineer, obviously. And I just remember starting engineering thinking, God, I feel like I'm armed with a lot of information here that you wouldn't necessarily be you know you just you have such sympathy for the people on the stage and you have sympathy for what it is they're going to need and also how they want to feel Mm -hmm. um as a performer yourself so yeah i'm really grateful to have both backgrounds so uh, i see you i mean we're looking at you obviously people in the podcast can't hear you they can't see you um (laughs) but um you've got a big a big furry microphone in front of you and it looks like quite good speakers behind do you have a little home studio there or I do. I'm really lucky. Um, I just moved back home to Belfast a couple of years ago and we were able to get a house that needed a load of work. And I just thought, I guess with all of the uncertainty that, you know, being a musician brings with it, you never really know what situation you're going to be in and, you know, what you're going to be able to support. And I just thought if I was able to do work in my house, at least it would enable me to work no matter what came really. And so I have a place where I can rehearse kind of acoustic instruments and and rehearse for the stage as well. So I have a mini wee PA that I use to test out all my electronic stuff before I actually get the gig. And then I have another room where I I do any kind of electroacoustic composition. So it has nicer speakers and, and 
terrible acoustic the, the, <laughs> the wee composition studio but but this, the place for, for for playing I'm hoping to have house music and things I've always had house gigs running since maybe about 2010 I start 2007 I started them so it all got a bit different though with the pandemic and all you know I, I'd planned to have music in the house every month you know with just informal music playing and also rehearsing and then suddenly the world shut down so you know, I'm using the home studio, the writing for a lot of the composition work at the minute, but I'm hoping that the ability to connect with other musicians in real life and in the performance space will will happen more yeah. at, um coming times. And your um, your PhD was in composition. Did that? How did that lead you into the sort of research led work at Cambridge on gender inequality and so forth? Yeah. Um. I started the PhD after working as a, a tech at the Sonic Arts Research Centre for some years. And it was really because I, I, you know, I realised I had planned to work at this brilliant research centre for experimental music. And I thought, I'll, I'll do the work during the day and in the evenings I'll be able to use the studios. Well, <laughs> that, that was kind of optimistic because obviously at the end of a working day, you're exhausted and you have barely a creative bone left in your body. So I realised if I was going to want to work creatively, that I was going to need to prioritise that. And so uh, I was able to start a PhD that was in performance and composition, its relation you know, to traditional music and combining that with new technologies, with computer music, with live interaction, with electroacoustic composition. So I spent four years doing that. Um, and then I, you know, with for me, academia is all mixed up in performance and composition and, and investigating new ways of involving computers in the whole shebang. So um, I spent a few years working freelance then as a composer and performer. And the fellowship in Cambridge came up and it was very open and enabled me to continue to work as creative practice as research. Um, right. So I, I started that in 2016. Um, and so but it, the, it became very kind of specific what the what it ended up being. Um, am I right in thinking that? Because um, you you started working on the, the research that, that came out later in 2018. Yeah, I, I started the fellowship um, thinking about composition and new technologies and traditional music. And, you know, you've, you, you you work on that in a whole ecosystem. I'm, I was writing pieces for um, per, traditional performers with, with computer. And around 2018, I started to write uh, for a singer called Pauline Scanlon. And I wanted to write something about gender and traditional music as a female sound engineer and as someone who, you know, performs as well uh, as a woman in music, I had encountered lots of different situations that were less than ideal, mm. you know, where, where the things had been problematic and they had, I'd encountered that as sexism really in, as a performer and as an engineer. And sometimes the things are so subtle and especially as a self-employed person and especially because you often can't prove that it is sexism. Yeah. I was left in one particular instance with a really difficult situation where I lost work and had no recourse. I had no one to go to. I had no one to complain. And if you're working freelance, you just don't get the work anymore and there's yeah. nothing you can do about it. So I was furious and I thought the only thing I can do here is write a piece of music about it, put some of that energy into it. And when I when I'm feeling particularly raging, I'll perform the piece of the gig and I'll move on. <laughs> I honestly did think that was all I could do, and you know I didn't want to be raging about it forever either. I just thought if this wells up again, I'll play the piece that night and then I'll move on. And that was the plan anyway. I, I wrote the piece and I, I performed it with Pauline Scanlon. It was called "What Haven't We Heard," and it was coming from the point of view of, you know. If there is such a, a low representation of women in music and in sound engineering, we are not hearing 50% of the music that we could potentially hear. Yeah. Just it happens with every kind of low representation of any group of people. You know, you're just simply not hearing the creativity from that group of people. And so I called the piece, What Haven't We Heard? And that was the theme behind it. And it was to be premiered in Derry at the start of 2018. And around the same time, um, other musicians in Ireland were, you know, coming out and speaking out about about sexism within the traditional music community that they had experienced. And 
because it kind of happened at the same time as this piece and because we were having those conversations, Fair Play was formed at that time and it's it blew up as a movement. We organised sessions and awareness raising and online campaigns and a, an academic conference around it. There was media and, you know, it, it was a really a big movement involving a lot of different people. And because that all happened, the response was was varied. You know, we did get quite a lot of backlash from the traditional music community. And one of the things I kept saying was, prove it, prove it to us that this is happening. And I thought, people's stories are not cutting it here. No one is taking that as proper evidence. And I thought, I am in a position at a university where I could carry out a research project. I have a position where the way that I spent my time and the research that I do is up to me. And so I was able to take on this new research project. And for the next three years, I collected um, submissions from people about sexism in Irish traditional music. I analysed that those submissions, uh, they were all anonymous. And I then wrote that research up and published it. And it came out in March 2021. And I mean, I've read the report and it struck me that, you know, uh, far, how far beyond the stories of what we hear about in the media. The media always latch on to the stories of sexual assault, which obviously are an important part. But they're, you know, what the more wide ranging stuff was the more prevalent and perhaps more subtle inequalities. You know, how how difficult do you find it to get that story across? Really, really hard. You know, I expected that I would spend a couple of months on this project. Yeah. And the 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 difficulty and the new in analysing those stories and in writing them up in a way that captured the complexity of this question took me three solid years. Wow. Um, what you say about, you know, I, I what I did was I took all the stories and I analysed them and I tagged them so that I, I put tags on them as to what their content was. Mm -hmm. And each story might have had, you know, between six and 30 tags attached to it because everyone just wrote down their experience and so it, the, each story was tagged with many different topics mm -hmm. and at the end of all the analysis sexual assault and harassment was only a topic in about 13 percent of the stories so it's a relatively small amount mm -hmm. of stories that mention this compared to something like people saying that they had experienced sexism in Irish traditional music repeatedly and over time that happened in something like 60 to 70% of the stories. So the fact that it was it was constant and ongoing was way more of a tag than sexual assault featuring. Yeah. And it's it's really hard to get people to care about the fact that this happens every day. It's much easier to get them to care yeah. about the fact that someone has been sexually assaulted. And that's that's obvious, you know, it's one of them is a much more serious and and clearly damaging and illegal mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. The other one is not. It's not so clear. It's not illegal. But it does have a very serious effect over the course of a life. Yeah. So uh, as you say, the media immediately take on the stories that are very clearly serious and illegal, but the problem starts in a very much more nuanced way. Yeah. And we're talking about the language that's used and the um, just differences to the way that the women are treated to the way that men are treated you know even in the same band or whatever um yeah and very and crucially none of it is provable yeah you know even in my own experiences of it which obviously weren't included in the research I could never call one thing that happened and say that's definitely you being sexist and if you can never call anything specifically then you have to rely on a wide range of stories and on collective voice mm -hmm. but you have to rely on collective voice properly analyzed and peer-reviewed before anyone's going to listen to you <laughs> yeah which is what you did I mean I noticed the uh, as the opposition to the report I mean I think that what was quite striking that there were a few people who basically their criticism was that you and you know the other campaigners for example the people with fair play and um key change and all these other things had created a problem that didn't exist before you started campaigning, which is quite interesting. Quite interesting. Yeah, argument. I find that a really. Di I mean, the 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 difficult responses that I got were were hard to read. I had to read these things over and over again, and some of them were quite cross mm -hmm. and really upsetting. Yeah. Um, but you created a problem by doing this research. Really took me to the fur. I mean, I 
I don't know why someone would think I would want to set down my performance and composition work and a research fellowship that I had worked really hard to get and pivot to doing this work where I would be openly abused for doing it and accused of making up a problem. I mean, it cost me a lot of time and a Mm. lot of money, a lot of emotion and a lot of sleepless nights to do that work. There is no way if I was going to make up a problem that I would have chosen that one. Um, We're dealing here with a reality for performers. Mm -hmm. Um, And 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 the fact that people would translate them not seeing a problem to me making one up is the problem that we're dealing with. You know, just because you don't see it does not mean it doesn't exist was my message. It's like saying if the word racism didn't exist, there wouldn't be racism. You know, in a way, yeah. <laughs> it's absurd, you know, um, but it, it, the opposition wasn't just from men. I think, I mean, that would, that would be easily explained away if it was seen to be a bunch of men didn't want this research to be done. A bunch of men didn't want these issues to be raised. It could be their, their guilt, their um, embarrassment or whatever. But there were some women as well, I think, who were opposed to what you were doing. Absolutely. And that came through both in the responses to the Fair Play campaign, you know, online or through conversations with other women. And it came through in the research, the anonymous submissions too. Um, And that is a difficult one to accept, but definitely there. Um, Experienced in some personal conversations as well. You know, I would speak to um, a woman who was a bit older than me who would say, you know, I really see that you're passionate about this work and I I can understand it conceptually, but it has not been my experience. And I had a really long conversation with her on a train. um, And by the end of the conversation, she was still totally mystified. And it wasn't until later that night when she went home and spoke to her teenage daughters and said, I heard this from Una and she's I just can't understand it. Like, surely she's talking, you know, she's had a bad time experience. And her daughters went, are you serious, mommy? Here are the ways in which we understand what she is saying. And it was only when her daughters said to her how they viewed it that she came back to me. And the ways her daughter explained, her, her daughters explained their experiences to her really made her reevaluate her own experiences. And she said, now that you explain that to me, I can see these points from my early engaging with traditional music where it wasn't equal, but she, it was so ingrained in her to accept it that she didn't um, see that it was a problem. And there's there's two more things I would say. One is that the system has worked for many women, you know, and many women has grow, have grown up and have developed their careers and have adjusted their careers to exist in that system. I definitely have as well. You know, when I started out working, there was definitely things that enabled me to get further in a gig you know, if I showed up wearing a certain uniform, for example, to do live sound engineering, um, I'd, I, it was helpful for me to look a certain way, to have eye makeup on. You know, these things would help me, I thought. And so you adjust what you, you adjust to, to, to fit the scenario that you find yourself in. And if you've had a career of adjusting in that way, and then suddenly someone comes and puts a bomb in the middle of it and says that we're not going to continue on like this, mm. that's very difficult for women who have adjusted and and worked within the system to accept yeah so I understand that and and that's one of the things we have to get around and the third thing I'd say is that everyone's opinion in this is you know we have to listen to it and respect it and there may be women who disagree that it exists and that that is their experience one of the things the research found was that um some women are shielded from it you know, by the fact perhaps that they are, that they come from a a certain family, for example, and that they have, they've had certain things that enable them to be accepted and to not experience sexism. And that is, that's their experience and it's valid. Or maybe if they're not single, that would be another, maybe another factor that would would affect the way that some people view a woman. But in the, in the research as well, that, that, that often threw up other issues because they were then treated as the guy's partner rather than a person in their own right um Mm -hmm. so yeah all of these things came out yeah and it's often assumed i think as well that a girl in a band is going out with one of the guys isn't it yeah that that (laughs) happened too yeah (laughs) um i know i know that some people um i've spoken to about this have you know feel like the the problem is down to a few bad apples if you like i suppose we're talking particularly as well about people who 
are what we would call abusers, that they should be named and dealt with. I mean, what, what do you think of that argument? I think that the most common tag in the research that um, women experienced sexism repeatedly and over a long period of time would suggest that this is not just bad apples. Mm -hmm. You know, we may be able to say that about the really extreme and illegal parts of this conversation. Yeah. Um, But it is a pyramid and the extreme and illegal things are at the top of the pyramid and the things like the language and the assumptions and whether people are silenced or listened to or whether they're offered the same respect or whether they're assumed to be just in the band because they're somebody's partner. All of those things exist at the bottom of the pyramid and they shore up the really problematic damaging things at the top, which may be bad people, Mm -hmm. but um, that is not where the problem starts or finishes. And so I say, yes, there may be some bad apples, but I'm saying just if they were all to disappear, the problem of sexism and traditional music would not disappear. And do you feel that there are any significant changes happening over over the past few years? Well, the landscape, I can only speak from my point of view, and and the landscape for me has changed, but that could well be because I'm further on in a career now and I feel a bit more um, comfortable and experienced, you know, different to what I did feel when I was 21. But I would hope that these conversations, just simply because they have happened and are happening, I mean, the fact that this lecture has been um, programmed as part of Tradfest, I've seen other festivals, you know, at least try to look at their programming. Um, There have been panel discussions on this in different Tradfests. I don't think we're there yet. Um, I think people are still experiencing it on a day-to-day basis at a gig, I, I gave a talk to a group of 16-year-old girls um, and one of them had just been at an accordion competition and had had a terrible um, response from an adjudicator at that competition. So, you know, it's it's still happening. I know it's still happening, but I think things are really slowly improving. I really hope that people feel able to continue to discuss it because... I do know that one of the responses um, from men in the community has has been to just stop talking altogether, be afraid to open their mouth. And yeah. that's really difficult. I, I always try to have this conversation in a way that is a conversation rather than an accusation mm-hmm. um, because we're not going to move on unless we bring everyone along yeah. with us. Absolutely. I mean, a few years back, you could have gone a, a festival, a music festival with a hundred male performers and five female and no one would have thought twice about it at least now people are kind of analyzing those figures you know i know we always have a gender balance in all the festival programming we do in general gig programming that we do and that can only help really if there are more women on the scene they're not seen as some sort of you know something unusual there it's not a group of five guys in the band and one woman one woman you know so that, yeah that could help in one some respects i suppose I mean, with with all traditions, you know, they take a while to change. And so uh, it is going to take time. And I th- I do think there are still some festivals running at that, you know, five women and 100 men. Yeah. I think it's going to be a while. Um, And, and you know, I, I spoke to someone the other day and there was a panel discussion that was currently, that I was being asked to be involved in, but it was currently all men. And I said, well, you're going to have to, you know, seek other women to be involved there. Uh, otherwise, you know, it would be accused of being a manal, and he didn't know what the word manal was, <laughs> you know, which is a panel made up of all men. And, you know, the fact that he had never heard of that and, and was kind of like, oh, right, okay. I said, you can't have, and the title of it was The Future of Music, you know. <laughs> you can't have a load of men deciding what the future of music was, was what I said. Uh, so, you know, it's going to take time. But yeah, we're having these conversations, and I really hope they continue. Yeah. That's brilliant. Thanks so much for uh, your time. And we're really looking forward to seeing you in May. Um, And I know that you're primarily known for your music. So I think we're going to finish with one of your recordings. Uh, What are we going to hear? Um, This is going to be this is going to be Relta. Um, It is the first electroacoustic piece that I wrote. Um, It's made up primarily of harp recordings. And then I play 
um, acoustic harp, which I improvise over the top. So I have a fixed media tape piece in the background and then I play harp over the top. So it's different every time I perform it. But this one is from my album four that I released in 2018. Fantastic. Thanks so much. Yeah, See you thanks soon. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye. 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 See you at Trackfest. Bye.
That was Relta by Una Monaghan from the album Four. You can get your copy from unamonaghan.com. Una will be giving our second annual Rebellious Truth Lecture at the Traverse on Tuesday the 3rd of May. She will also be performing live and leading a discussion with panellist Katrina MacDonald, Christian Gamuth and Martin Green. Hi, I'm Dave Milligan. I'm appearing at Tradfest. I would like to recommend um, Patsy Reed and Alice Allen, uh, two absolute masters of their instrument, um, fiddle and cello duo. Um, and I've, I've been lucky enough to work with both of them in the past uh, and they're just such consummate musicians and they play so well as a duo. Uh, I would highly recommend an evening listening to their music. Uh, that was a very good attempt by Dave Milligan to shoot himself in the foot by recommending a gig that's on at the same time as his own with Kareem Polwart. Fortunately, his own gig is sold out on the 5th of May, but uh, tickets are still available for Alice Allen and Patsy Reed. Now, we're going to hear from Laureline Morgan Davis from Madurum. <laughs> Three Martelode literally translates to three sailors and is one of the first songs that were brought to Madram and arranged together. It tells the story of three young sailors who depart from Newfoundland, leaving their homes behind and encounter a lost love whilst on their travels and reminisce on what could have been. It's sung in the Breton language and is a popular traditional Breton song made famous by the legendary Alan Stevell. As quite an unusual choice for our newly developing trad band at the time, it kind of sets the precedent for our future arrangements of varied influences. As one of our earliest tunes in recordings, we haven't revisited it for a while, but recently chose to breathe new life into it and pay a sort of homage to our origins. One of our favourite things about ourselves is our diversity of languages and genres, and you could describe us as a pick and mix of different tastes and influences. We've had Gaelic, Breton, French and Scots songs, and each band member brings a different flavour to the band, like bluegrass, folk and funky jazzy stuff. Despite our very different tastes, we manage to mesh well together, and in fact, a lot of our arrangement processes involve this hybridisation of our very different approaches into something that becomes wholly different from the individual. Trimartelode is one of the first instances of that happening, and for that reason, it is very near and dear to our hearts. We're a band with a unique makeup sound-wise, but also considering trad as a very straight male-dominated scene, we're operating as a mainly all-female queer band. We are recently appearing at Tradfest as part of Queer Voices in Folk, but we're also going to be performing at Beatfest. Aside from that, we've also been cooking up two new singles in the studio that will hopefully be ready for release later this year. Martelod by Madurum. You can purchase Madurum's music via Bandcamp and you can see them play live as part of our Boafrost Night on Sunday the 8th of May. Hello, my name's Kareen Power and I am performing at Tradfest 2022 with Dave Milligan. I'd like to recommend Janice Burns and John Doran, who are a beautiful young vocal duo based in the northeast of England. Um, they play lovely strings, they have gorgeous harmony arrangements. Um, I've, I've never seen them live, but I've just been so impressed 
um, with what they've been putting out online over the past couple of years. I think it's really um, well-crafted, intimate, beautifully understated. Janice Burns and John Doran. Thank you, Corinne, for that recommendation. We first came across Janice Burns and John Doran when we organised some online showcase concerts for young musicians. They're quite stunning and will be performing at the Travers on Saturday 30th April. Our final studio guests are Sugar Nifty's James McIntosh and Ailey Shaw. Sugar Nifty has a very special place in our hearts. They are an Edinburgh band, of course, one that sprung out of the very vibrant and varied session scene here in the late 80s, early 90s. They actually did some of their very earliest rehearsals in our house when our basement was a rough, unrenovated space that was free for bands to use. We were delighted when they agreed to celebrate their 30th anniversary with us in 2020, something that's going to be an even bigger party two years on. They'll be getting everyone up to dance at Potter Row on Friday the 6th of May. In anticipation of that glorious event, we are joined by James McIntosh and Ailey Shaw. Hi there. Hello. 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 How are you doing? Hello. Not bad, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, you've both had the dreadful COVID uh, during the past wee while. You're just through it, aren't you, James? How did it go for, uh, uh, how did yeah. it go for you guys? Oh, it was fantastic. <laughs> it was brilliant. Yeah. Loved it, every minute of it. No, it was, uh, I'm still not quite over it, actually. No, I keep get you keep getting these spells oh, of tiredness, yeah. like just out of the blue. But I'm certainly fine. Nothing major. It was a pretty rough first couple of days, but I'm good. We thought it was very sensible for you to build up your immunity in term time for the gig in Edinburgh. That was the plan, yeah. yeah. But I guess it was inevitable getting on a flight in Bristol and being hacked in with like sardines with a bunch of travellers. But I was just really happy I hadn't caught it on the tour I'd been on. So that would have been a disaster. But managed to finish the tour. I got, um, before we kind of joined you today, I got Douglas to write down some questions and most of them I had to cross out. But this this is one for you, Ailey, mm-hmm. that he came up with. And it's basically, mm-hmm. if aliens landed, and right now anything in the world seems feasible, how would you explain the name Sugar Nifty to them? Oh, I would have hoped that that would be part of their lingo already just a kind of general term for a pint yeah. of milk or something yeah we actually did explain it all to aliens when we visited mexico about 14 years ago and we played the pyramids that's when we explained it douglas you're just getting you're not not up to speed on your obviously sugar nifty, not, obviously not. Sugar nifty uh minutiae yeah. we, we actually met aliens in mexico and it, it's all over yeah you know what's going on it was yeah. mexico not egypt it was mexico oh, right there you go. Right, James, I've got a slightly more sensible question. And it is, how does it feel to be in a band that has reached such a ripe old age? And did you expect it to last this long? Oh, um, it feels really brilliant. Um, really good. But slightly frustrating just to have, for the band to have kind of been reborn just as COVID kicked in. But um, yeah, it feels great. We're just, uh, it's been all the gigs we have managed to do and all the recordings we've done have just been just great fun. So, um, yeah. And no, I didn't expect it to last this long at all, particularly not during the first three years. I didn't actually expect it to last much more than half an hour at any given point <laughs> in those days. <laughs> it was always on the edge of collapse. Yes. But that, yeah. But yeah, um, no, it's, I mean, 30 years. 32. 32. Okay, yeah. No, brilliant. <laughs> Absolutely great. So um, if I played thousands of gigs, obviously, all over the place, um, I'll, just, I'll drop another one on you without any warning. Uh, maybe Ailey first. What's your um, favourite gig and your least favourite gig? In your case, we'd maybe extend it beyond Sugar Nifty. My favourite gig and my least favourite gig? Mm. Yeah. That's a bit of a springer, right enough. Jeez, um, uh, well, my least favourite gig it could also be my favourite gig because <laughs> there was a very happy ending. Ah, um, love a, a happy ending. It was an awful, uh, an awful gig, corporate thing, um, and it was full of Tory MPs. And uh, at the end of at the end of the night. Myself and the sound man, who I won't name, 
accidentally discovered a room full of crates of champagne. <laughs> uh-huh. I've got a similar one, actually. Yeah. Um, it wasn't the worst gig, but it was on the Isle of Man where we discovered at the end of the, the afternoon a tent full of champagne. And uh, we made a human chain. And uh, firstly, uh, Ailey's brother was involved in it. In fact, I think he led the charge. But no, um, favourite gig. The last one we played, actually, in Neudert was a bit of a stoter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, quite high up on the legendary Shugal Nifty gigs. Anything on um, the west coast of Scotland tends to be pretty yeah. epic. Yeah, or about... Anything on the west coast of Scotland or as far away from the west coast of Scotland as can possibly get, like New Zealand, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, somewhere, anything over that side of the world is always brilliant. Tell us a bit more about the Neudart gig, because I think it was uh, one that had been put off a couple of times, obviously, um, but there was it was quite interesting getting there, right? Uh, well, it was nearly a disaster because the weather was um, unbelievably bad, uh, but luckily... Because we hadn't seen each other or done a gig together for so long, we'd all decided to go at least one day early <laughs> to get into the swing of things. So uh, we all managed to get over there the day before, except Ewan. Uh, it was touch and go for him, but they sailed one boat over on the Saturday morning and he caught that. And after that, we were shut off from the rest of the world for a good couple of days. We certainly got into the swing of it on the first night, if I remember. All that rehearsal. Oh, yeah. Really good. Really, like, I mean, got loads of tunes together that that Ailey played for the first time on the gig. Some old, old, uh, old classics. Mm-hmm. So that was great. We played a kind of epic set of new and old um, pipe tunes and things like that. All right, cool. And it was just really great because all everyone who'd gone there and who who was from there to see us. I mean, I don't think they'd been to a gig for a gig like that at least for over a year, or maybe two at least. So it was just. The vibe was amazing. Yeah. yeah. Ailey, do you have a favourite one of those old Sugar Nifty tunes that you particularly like to play? Uh, well, I always love to play Venus and Tweeds, even mm. though nobody ever knows <laughs> <laughs> what's going to happen. I do. I know. Well, I, I know what should happen. <laughs> <laughs> but that uh. was always my favourite track. And um <laughs> I actually, when I, when Venus and Tweeds, the album came out, I was sharing a flat with Angus at the time and uh, had a very clear dream one night where I could hear an entire orchestra playing that tune. Wow. And uh, it was very disappointing for me because I thought that Angus had ripped it off <laughs> and um, passed it off as one of his own. <laughs> Maybe he'd brought an orchestra back from the pub. You just weren't dreaming at all. Maybe that's possible, though. The, <laughs> the timpani section was... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that that may that may end up coming true one day because the great orchestra are talking about playing. Mind you, Greg always comes up with these highfalutin ideas, but he did talk about orchestrating a Shugal Nifty tune or two. Uh-huh. So well, you never know. You two be well ahead yeah. on that curve. Imagine how ca- how much chaos that would involve. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But to be fair, Angus didn't really know what happened next in, in Venus and Tweeds either. So, and he wrote it. You know, he well, he kind of wrote it, and then so he says. it was arranged. So he says, yeah. Then it was a kind of arranged by a, another. Well, it was a version of it by a band, String Jammer, that Quee's brother was in, Neil Foxy. Oh, yeah. And then it came to Sugar Nifty, and we kind of managed to, you know, arrange it in the way it is. Uh, and it's, yeah, but it's yeah, it's always quite exciting playing it live because like Ailey says you never really know <laughs> what's what's going to happen there's a big improvised section in the middle where there's generally no rules whatsoever and you rely on some pretty obscure cues so yeah, yeah. Cool. but we played it perfectly in Neuter yeah Absolutely. we played everything yeah. perfectly in Neuter and we did I know. it was all that rehearsal the night before there are very few witnesses though <laughs> <laughs> I don't think many of them will remember it. No. Somehow. No. Yeah. So um, on a previous podcast, you talked about an, an early trip to Spain where you were compared favourably to Los Rollings, you oh, know, yeah. like Miguel Jagger and Carlos Watts. <laughs> See, that lot. Yeah. See, you are Los Rollings. <laughs> <laughs> See, 
So um, just wondering, I mean, how, how, how big a thing is it? How important has it been, the kind of international travel to Sugar Nifty, you know, in terms of yeah. your influences and whatever? Um, well, I, yeah, I mean, important in that it's amazingly, you feel really privileged to get to travel around the world and meet all these extraordinary bands. And I think when you hear all these different sounds, if you're playing like a WOMAD festival in, you know, Cáceres or a WOMAD festival or a world music festival in, I don't know, um, Albuquerque, everything everything you hear that's amazing is going to filter in somehow. And whether you like it or not, it's going to, you know, inspire you. And so I guess it's, it's always important to meet other musicians and hear just so you don't find yourselves in a bit of a rut. Not that we ever seem to have managed to do that. But yeah, it's, and it's always just lovely to travel. It just always gives you a better perspective on life at home, really. Um, I think. I suppose there's not been an awful lot of uh, chance to do that recently. No, no. Um, if you could go anywhere, Ailey, in the world, uh, you know, next week to play, where would you go? Oh. Not no, dart though. Uh, <laughs> Overseas. A little bit further afield. Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe a couple of weeks in Jamaica. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What do you particularly like mm. about the Jamaican musical style? It's kind of laid back and, you know, <laughs> yeah. no real rules or regulations. Just kind of have a good time. Talking of Los Rollings, Keith Richard lived in Jamaica for a while. He was he was kind of inspired by the music there. So it worked for him. Mm-hmm. Maybe we could make it happen. That's not where he fell out of the tree, though, he was had, it? That that's, was Australia. Yeah. No, it was, but he, I think it was where he snorted his father's ashes. <laughs> <laughs> Allegedly. Allegedly. Easily done. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> okay. well, that's what it says in his book, anyway. Yeah. Ailey, I have another question for you. Mm-hmm. So the 30th anniversary album Acid Croft Volume 9 came out during lockdown together with some rather unusual videos that people should check out on YouTube if they haven't seen them. What have you got planned for the next 30 years? <laughs> okay, the next <laughs> few weeks. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Well, hopefully everything's uh, moving around a bit more and uh, I've got some gigs in the diary. We're going to England. Ooh. Are we? Aren't we? Oh yeah, yes, me. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, Englandshire, Englandshire. So yeah, just hopefully get back into it a bit and um, play more music together in real life and get back on the road a bit. Yeah, it's been a bit like our gigs have been so like hen's teeth. So every time we have played a gig, it's been like a really exciting get together. And uh, I guess once we start touring and things again, we're going to have to just not treat it like a... To rein <laughs> it in a bit. Rein, yeah, rein it in a bit and not um, celebrate so much each time we get together. But we've <laughs> missed out in two years, so we've still That's got a true, bit so, to make yeah, up for. You're quite right. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you got to keep practice. I thought you were working on perhaps some new tunes. Oh, did you? Yeah. No, we're not, yeah, we're not yeah, no, we are. That. Yeah, no, there's a bunch of tunes firing about, and uh, they're all pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ailey's written at least two of them. Ewan's got a couple. I think there's one of Quee's. Or, but yeah, we're gonna actually we're gonna rehearse this. We get get together this weekend in the legendary shed at Quee's, unless another tree's fallen in it. Oh God! Um, and we've been sharing files and coming up with lots of ideas. So. Yeah, yeah. Ailey's written a couple of parlours, as Luke Plum would say. <laughs> so we're gonna—I think we're gonna finish off with a wee track from um, the last album. Uh, what are we gonna play? And can you tell us a little bit about it? Who's gonna do that? Uh, I think we're going for Black Dog. Yeah, is that right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Black Dog in the balcony. I think is that is, is that actually called Black Dog in uh, the Black balcony? Black Dog on the balcony. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that was uh, inspired by an occasion in Rajasthan when we decided to celebrate after the gig and 
asked our, our wonderful driver to grab us a bottle of whiskey. And he said, no problem. And off he went. He came back with a bottle of Black Dog, which isn't actually whiskey as far as any of us can work out. But it had similar effects to whiskey. But um, it's like Indian whiskey. It's made from concentrate. Yeah. Made from whiskey concentrate, yeah. I discovered at, at the end of the night. And uh, yeah, there was a good deal of psychosis and um, a lot of howling at the moon and singing and um, bearing our souls. And um, in fact, I think I did an interview the next day for the documentary and uh, I don't recognize myself in it at all. It's like, so anyway, that, that inspired Black Dog on the Balcony. And in the middle of that set, there's a, a really nice push to Beale. Um, is it the one from Cana? Can you remember, really? I think um, they're mostly about cows, aren't they? <laughs> mostly about cows cows and whiskey that's where it's at yeah <laughs> great thanks so much always thanks so much for coming into our virtual studio thank you we look thank forward you. to seeing you on the 6th of May okay. see you later bye. see you soon bye, bye. bye.
Dog from the album Acid Croft Volume 9, which you can buy from sugarnifty.com. Sugar Nifty will finally be celebrating their 30th anniversary on Friday the 6th of May at Pottero. Expect tunes old and new and lots of dancing. Hello, I'm Patsy Reid and I'm delighted to be appearing at the Edinburgh Tradfest along with Alice Allen as part of Strathby Queens. And well, I'm amazed and looking at the lineup for the festival, it looks fantastic. As a string player, I have to say you must go and see Freg, they're absolutely amazing. And then also check out Three Girls Hecla, they're doing really, really great stuff as well. So I'm going to make my, make my way through to Edinburgh to watch their gigs. Thank you, Patsy. Frigg are at the Traverse on Tuesday the 3rd of May and Hecla are on the Boa Frost Bill at Madurum on Sunday the 8th of May. As for Patsy herself, she'll be performing with Alice Allen on Thursday the 5th of May. We're going to finish now with our final musical journey, this time from singer Subrina Ward, also known as Brina. My journey to Scotland began when I fell in love, then married a Scottish man who was already living in Jamaica. We embarked on writing and performing original music together and then decided that making a visit to this beautiful country was the right choice back in 2010. So since the time of relocating here, I have grown first and foremost in love with the versatility of the geography of Scotland whilst being immersed in cultural events like attending the Highland Games in Bridge of Allen that summer, uh, going from Stirling to visit the Isle of Mull, uh, witnessing the Mull Rally in October and by the end of that autumn that year we all experienced a great snowstorm and you know that was my first time experiencing snow. I remember being on the phone with my dad in Jamaica and watching this mysterious thing fall to the ground. That night, the snow did not stop falling. And I remember going out every hour just to check the depth, you know, and that the snow was still out there. Everything was so quiet and we were in the countryside. So I remember entertaining myself by building many a snowman and you know testing out many different styles of snow angels and i've loved snow ever since and so i i have a great appreciation for the climate um you know the weather systems here and i embrace it by going outdoors hiking exploring and have even picked up cold water swimming uh, which i find so refreshing the relocation in 2010 uh, saw us arranging meetings with different reggae music promoters, uh, people who were interested in world music um, for venues in Glasgow and Edinburgh. And I had the opportunity of performing as a warm-up act for various Jamaican artists who were on tour and passing through Scotland. So that time whilst we were establishing connections and navigating the music scenes um, by way of introductions was an interesting period. Uh, I've, I've enjoyed watching and listening to pipe bands and that's one of my favorite experiences here. I love pipe bands. Um, and as, as well as meeting and networking with traditional and contemporary musicians from the islands, the highlands and the borders and also meeting by extension other musicians from other countries. All of that happening here in Scotland has been a very exciting time. And for me, making my home base in central Scotland has allowed me to perform on some of the country's best stages, uh, being exposed to local radio and television, as well as town and village halls, uh, altogether, there have been some amazing engagements over the years. Scotland has allowed me to appreciate many aspects of my years growing up in Jamaica and my foundation in traditional, in, in traditional Jamaican music upbringing. That, you know, my time here in Scotland has brought that to the surface. Um, and... The two countries are incomparable, but I see many aspects of similarities in the people, among the people. 
However, music has been my inroad to the hearts of Scottish audiences. Um, my voice has been and continues to be a vehicle. The music I hear in my heart these days has certainly been impacted by my journey here and I'm looking forward to a continuation of unfolding and expressing that development. So after the global pandemic and now that things are beginning to open up, I, I'm excited to reveal the canvas of creative expressions that I have been preparing. Thanks to Brina for sharing her story. The track played was a sneak preview of Be Ready, which will be part of her brand new release coming up later this year. You can buy Brina's music via Bandcamp and you can hear her sing as part of Come All Ye on Monday the 2nd of May at the Travers. Thanks to all our guests, Una Monaghan, Laureline Morgan Davis, Ailey Shaw, James McIntosh and Sabrina Ward. And thanks to Dave Milligan, Kareen Polwart and Patsy Reid for their recommendations. So, Jane Ann. You previously asked me what was my top tip for the festival. What are you most looking forward to? I am uh, really looking forward to seeing Gunning and Cormier. Uh, regular listeners to the podcast might remember that last year we, we had a fantastic interview with JP Cormier, who is just one of the most incredible instrumentalists from Canada, singer-songwriter, and he's, he's teamed up with Dave Gunning, who's also a brilliant performer. So it'll be really amazing to see them. And I think they're on at the Traverse on Wednesday the 4th of May, so check that out. That was episode 12 of the Edinburgh Trad Fest podcast. Edinburgh Trad Fest takes place this year from Friday 29th April to Monday 9th May. We hope you can join us for some great gigs in Edinburgh during that time. There is no substitute for the experience of listening to live music in the company of like-minded people who've all been isolated for too long. Check out the full programme via the website edinburghtradfest.com. We hope to be back next April with more episodes of the Edinburgh Tradfest podcast, but this year's episodes will stay around for a whole year for you to enjoy. Thanks so much for listening. Edinburgh Tradfest podcast is produced and presented by Douglas Robertson and Jane Ann Purdy, with the help of our hugely capable engineer, Dave Kay. The theme tune, Silence of the Trams, is by Angus R. Grant, performed and arranged by Sugal Nifty. Information on all our guests and the music played is listed on our website, edinburghtradfest.com. Huge thanks to our funders, Creative Scotland and... The William Grant Foundation, makers of Glenfiddich and other wonderful things. Please rate, review and subscribe to Edinburgh Tradfest podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Apparently that helps other people find it. Thanks very much. <laughs>